Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Debbie. There are few people in the UK who sit on more interesting boards than Debbie. She chairs the huge consumer brand Compare the Markets, Wagamama owner the restaurant group, and now the English Football Association. After England eliminated Germany in the Euro Cup, Debbie generously agreed to not talk about football today. In this episode, Debbie talks about her mom sadly dying at age 14 and the impact it had on her career the chip on her shoulder from not straight away graduating from university, the impact of her career from losing one million pounds in her second job, the power of moving around functions, asking 8,500 operations team members to go into London the day of the terrorist attacks to get abandoned cars out, and of course, what she's learned about boards. Debbie, thank you so much for joining. Uh, before we delve into your amazing experience and career, I'd love to hear where you grew up. Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, so Northern Lass, so came from Northern parents, both born in Yorkshire. When I was born 1963, my mother was a working mother. She worked for the Inland Revenue, believe it or not. So she went back to work relatively quickly, which was very unusual in 1963. I think had quite an impact on me, you know, right from a very early age, I knew that my mum worked and she was the main breadwinner in the family. My father was a labourer, uh, had no education, although a very a smart and bright man, he had no education. Very, very sad. I had two siblings, so um, an older sister, two years older than me and a, and a much younger brother, seven years older. And then very sadly, when I was 14, very unexpectedly, my mother died um, which was pretty traumatic at the time for the family. Mm. But, you know, I, I guess you know, the door is positives in every situation. And I think for us in that one, it brought my family very close. So even today, I'm very, very close to my 86-year-old father and my two siblings, my, my, my brother and sister. So, you know, I think all of those things shaped who, who, who I am and, and what I did. And, you know, as, as all of us, you know, we've all got a, story, a life story. And I think for me, Whilst that heartache, um, it certainly brought, you know, a family life that now I treasure above above everything. And 14, I mean, must be such a difficult age to have, you know, such a tragic loss. Like, in what way did it shape you back then? Um, well, first of all, it meant I chose not to go to university first time round. It gave me, I think, additional drive because I kind of knew that I needed to get the family settled and play my part in helping the family to settle. And therefore, you know, I didn't feel going away at that time was particularly a helpful thing to do or to even contemplate that at the time. And I think from my own personal perspective, I think it gave me the drive to say, well, look, later on in life, I may well um, change that decision. So I must make sure that I don't flunk out here on my exams because you know, I would never want to feel that I'd, I'd lost the opportunity because I hadn't given it my all. So I think a real drive and just to do well, probably to, to for my mum, you know, I wanted to, to be able to say to her, you know, everything that you provided that role model for, you know, I, I wanted to just so much follow in her footsteps. So I did well in my, in my GCSEs and then in my A-levels, had ultimately, and once I'd made that decision, had, had some choice. Um, I joined Marks and Spencer on a management training scheme, largely because they agreed that I could start in my then hometown, Newark, in Nottinghamshire, as a junior trainee. 
And that really kind of settled me down because I felt as though I was getting a a good training with a very good company. In those days, Mark Suspense was seen as a, as a great place to be. It certainly wasn't seen as a second choice. But also I was able to, to stay at home and, and help, particularly with the little brother, you know, my dad, who then became, you know, a single parent family and, you, you know, had to focus on work. So we all rallied around. And I think, you know, the way, the way it influenced me, probably influenced both of them too. They've both gone on to be very successful in their own chosen careers. So I think, I think for all of us, gave us that drive to, to do something and give something back to mum, hopefully looking down on us. Very, very powerful um, point. Thank you for sharing. And how, how was the Marks and Spencer culture back then? I think in those days, I mean, I suppose it's only with hindsight that you, you think about it now. I think, I think they gave amazing training, mm -hmm. absolutely amazing training. I think far none of any other organization that I've ever worked with, any kind of internal training. It was just absolutely fabulous. But I, I think what I didn't appreciate until I left M&S that they gave you this amazing training, you actually could use what they'd given you because it was a very centralized organization. So most decisions were made for you. And it gave me a, a kind of false confidence in a way, because I think, I mean, the most important decisions were, were recruitment and recruitment of people, but decisions around merchandise, what a store would stock, what the price would be, even the PL, you know, you didn't have a PL of of your own store. So although I, I progressed really well in, in, in Marks and Spencer terms and they gave me some amazing experiences, I don't think my knowledge was ever really truly tested until I left that organization. So in a way you learned, I guess, the importance of giving people autonomy, ownership, accountability. It feels like a very powerful um, early on uh, learning. And what, what made you decide to leave then? Well, well, I got proud. I was I stayed in Marks and Spencer about six years and, and progressed, you know, to, to being, you know, running a store, which was in itself, you know, quite I felt at the time was was amazing for somebody so young. But I yeah. had this constant chip and I'm, you know, being brutally honest with you, Timo, a, a real chip on my a real chip on my shoulder that, you know, I hadn't got a degree. And although I found myself in a situation where I was overseeing graduates, I still somehow internally felt. I hadn't fulfilled my potential unless I'd got a degree. Mm -hmm. So I started to talk about Marks and Spencer. Would they sponsor me to do an MBA? And, you know, not, not unsurprisingly, their response was, well, look, no, we, you know, we don't feel you need that. You've, we give you all the training that you need and we just don't feel it's necessary. Um, and I got approached, you know, through a headhunter for a role, went to talk to an organization and they, as part of their package, promised me they would sponsor me to do an MBA. Mm. A company called Lex, which was a car company, who offered me what on paper looked like an amazing job, a company car, which at the time I thought I'd really made it. And, um, you, you know, quite a lot more money. And, you know, I thought the world was my oyster, really. And I left Mark Suspense, much to my father's disappointment, who could not get his head around the fact that I was leaving this amazing organization, which had taught me so much, given me so much responsibility, had sent me around the world. And probably the most abiding thing, you know, taught me all about the customer. It was the absolute tip-topping customer in putting the customer first in those days. And he just couldn't understand why was I giving that all up to join this unknown company. Um, and I joined Lex. And within about three weeks, it was pretty clear I'd made a, a very bad decision. You know, I'd, I'd gone for the title. I'd gone for the money. I'd gone for the car. And actually, what, what was on paper fantastic turned out to be selling used cars, which in itself, I mean, I'm very proud of. I, I learned a lot selling used cars, but with no training whatsoever. It was literally turn up, you know, here's, here's your car keys. Um, yeah, it was a company car, but, you know, I was doing a job which I was so ill-equipped to do. I stuck it out out of pride. I wasn't going to admit to anybody that I'd made a bad decision. And about six months in, I made one of the biggest mistakes of my career in that I bought a load of used cars at a time when anybody that knows anything about that market, they, you know, they saw me coming and cost the company just over a million pounds in, in, a, in a decision. I, I overpaid, you know, so they gave me all the accountability, all the authority to do the job, completely the opposite of M&S. But I hadn't got a clue 
in truth what I was doing. Wow. Um, and that that led to a disciplinary, I think you call it these days, a final written warning. I was very <laughs> lucky, actually. I should have been fired. And I remember the, the the guy who I'm still very much in touch with now who who sat me down and said, do you want to be accompanied? You know, this is a disciplinary. Um, do you know what do you know what you've done wrong? I, I genuinely hadn't got a clue. And he explained, you know, what I'd done and basically gave me probably one of the most sobering lessons of my career, which was, you know, you really don't know what you're doing. And that, you know, Mark Spencer didn't do you any favors in making you believe that you were amazing and because you're not. And I don't know why, but I do think that this is going to be the biggest lesson. And you'll either let me down again, in which case you'll go or you really will learn from it. And then, you know, I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed. You know, I've only told this story, I think, as I've got on in my career as something which says, you know, it's your mistakes you learn most from. Mm. It's failure that you learn most from. I really sincerely believe that. And luckily for me, I did learn. God, I worked hard, learned how to sell cars, learned how to fix cars and went on in that company. I stayed with them in the end over 20 years and progressed through a whole host of different jobs, ultimately becoming the chief exec of the RAC. So yeah, a very, very big lesson to learn, but um, one that shaped, shaped me as an individual and certainly is an experience that I, that I claim as, as leading to much of, of the success I've had in my career too. It's hugely fascinating. You probably were in your mid-twenties by then. And I mean, having such an experience must have been so fundamentally important for your career. At what stage did you feel like you recovered from it and, and you gained confidence again in the same organization? You clearly didn't leave. I think a lot of people would have just left. You stayed showing huge resilience. When did you kind of rebuild that confidence? I think when I actually started to enjoy selling cars, and I think that probably was the time when I realized, you know, all the training and no accountability was boring and frustrating all the accountability and no training was was terrifying and so it kind of helped me understand that never be frightened to admit you don't know it can only get you into trouble if you try and bluff your way through always be prepared to stick your hand up and say I just don't understand and also it taught me about taking risk on people because what then happened was you know, the guy who took a, I mean, he took a risk. It would have been much easier for him to just fire me, um, much easier. So he took a risk on me and I felt, you know, very strongly I owed him something. And that happened a lot throughout my career where people took a risk when on paper, I probably, you know, shouldn't have been the obvious person to put in a role. But when somebody does that and they tell you that's what they're doing, you know, they're honest with you. They're straightforward with you about where your gaps are. You know, that made a big, a big difference. And once I started to have people who were honest with me about the gaps that I had, strangely, that built my confidence because I knew that they knew that I didn't know. And it was okay for me to admit where the gaps were. And it was, you know, quite a, quite an interesting lesson, really, that confidence comes from admitting what you don't know, not from trying to bluff your way through. And how do you invite people to give you such honest feedback? I see a lot of defensiveness in people and it's quite hard when people work, you know, hard and long hours and they want to do the right thing. How do you build this growth mindset and invite this, this type of feedback to then fundamentally change and be better at, at what you do? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a fundamental believer that what we think about what we're told is often you know, what drives the reaction. So when you get feedback and someone says to you, look, that wasn't your best, or think about how you perform there, was it your best? You know, they ask you a question or they give you that feedback. Your reaction to that is because of the way you think when someone says that to you. And most of us kind of fear when you get that feedback, oh, I'm useless, I'm rubbish. That means I'm not going to survive. You know, there's a whole host of thoughts normally driven by fear of I'm not good enough or that means I'm a disaster and I can never recover. And that's often what I find most people's reaction is to feedback. And it's starting with that as a premise and unpacking those thoughts. Why do you automatically assume that that means you're not good enough? Why do you automatically assume that means you're not the best? And actually, it's only by inviting feedback and making it safe 
for people to give it to you and for you to give it that you really do get the benefit. And, you know, when I start to work with anybody for the for the first time or I see people struggling because they find it very difficult to accept, you know, what on the face of it is negative feedback. I start with their thoughts. You know, when you react that way, you know, when you heard that piece of feedback, you know, what went what went on for you and try and get people to unpack those thoughts. I see it so often. I see it with my kids, interestingly, too. You know, when you when you give them feedback, I can see the way they respond. It's one of the things I've tried very hard as a parent to help them understand that feedback is the only way you grow. You know, feedback is the only way that you really, truly, you know, get to hear how you're impacting people. And instead of thinking that it's all doom and gloom and, and negative, you, you know, people who can deal with feedback in a very positive, constructive and growth mindset will, will be the ones that succeed. And I, and I do that both in my work life and, and hopefully both in my, in my personal life too. Well, one of the most extreme manifestations of what you just described is in the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And it talks about, I mean, it's, ultimately it's a book about the concentration camp and a man trying to survive pretty much. It's, it's a hugely sad um, book, but it talks about your freedom pretty much lying between what actually happens in life and your reaction. So whether you choose fear or fight, curiosity as a premise, um, showing courage to listen to feedback, it's a very, very positive um, or powerful point you just made. I still find it fascinating because at first level, it feels like some people have that ability and others don't. But ultimately, I think over time you learn, you can teach people and it's all about growth mindset. Um, and everyone has the the um, opportunity to listen to feedback in a different or, or more positive way, I guess. What's that book, Timo? What's the book? Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. It's uh, written by a uh, now famous psychologist who went through the, the concentration camp in Nazi, Nazi Germany, Jewish person. And, you know, he sees the biggest suffering in humankind every single day close up. And most people pretty much give up and, and, and before they actually die. And he realizes he's got a choice. He's got a certain level of freedom. And some of the Nazis don't have that level of freedom because they're told how to react, whereas he's got the choice. He can, in his head, react um, in, in, in 10 different ways to a situation and make the most out of it. And he starts teaching others. And he then, after 1945, he turns it into a kind of a psychology or therapy form that, that today is, is relatively famous. Um, it's a great read and describes exactly the point you made. Oh, such a powerful story. Yeah. And going back to the IC, what what roles did you then take on? Oh, so I, I ran a car dealership for a period of time with Lex, and then we bought the RAC. And um, I, I went actually to do a stint in HR. I was very driven. Probably had probably some would say too much, too dot, too single a dimension about what success was. I was desperate to get on a board and a listed board. Absolutely desperate. When I asked myself why, I'm not quite sure why, but you know, it just felt that that was that was the definition of success. It didn't get any better than that. And part of the organisation that I was running was sold. It looked like I was going to leave the organisation. The then chief executive said to me, "Well, look, you, you know, there isn't really a role for you, but one thing I might consider doing is is asking you to lead the HR function, uh, which at the time I thought was." probably, you, you know, not, not the right role for me. It wasn't what I wanted to do, but he tempted me by saying, well, we'll put you on, we'll put you on the board. We're going to, we're going <laughs> to put the role on the board. Uh, and that was it, you know, click boom. I was, <laughs> I was sold on the job. And um, again, you know, it was one of those moments where, gosh, I wish I'd done a stint in HR a lot earlier because it really, or properly in HR, you know, because it really, gave me such an experience of seeing how people genuinely can make it make a difference in an organization in a more structured way than perhaps I'd done done before. I inherited an incredibly capable team. And, and it's you know absolutely true to say that my time in that role, I learned more from them than they ever did from me. I'm very grateful to them. And in fact, still very much in contact with that group now of, of um, people who, who were part of that team. 
Um, and they just taught me so much about how people can be motivated, whether it is nature and nurture, diver, you know, what, what today is called diversity. I mean, we didn't call it that in those days, shows you how old I am, but it was, you know, diversity of thinking, how teams get built. Um, it was an extraordinary lesson for me about, you know, people management with a very, you know, with a, with a remit, particularly in organization for people and how difficult that can be. Um, it also taught me a lot about how the HR function can play such a powerful role in organizations you know so often it becomes the the function of administration but i think that taught me how it can be a usp in in, in any organization and, and at that time too i also took on my first non-exec role you, you know i i would think i was about early 30s uh, at the time and got an opportunity to go and be a non-exec of a beer barrel making company wow. which again was quite an unusual move because you know I didn't have experience in that industry but going to be a non-exec armed hugely with the lessons that I'd learned from shifting to Lex you know another great experience to go and work in an organization knowing that I didn't know anything and of a mindset that said right I've got to learn about this business now too so yeah that was quite an interesting an interesting period of time in my career. Sounds absolutely amazing. I love the mindset of just seeking opportunities that might not look obvious to most people. I'm a, I'm a huge um, believer in shifting people around in the organization and, and unlocking their growth. But not everyone reacts positively. I, I would say 60% of the time people tell me it's not for them. They don't want to do it. You know, they're set on a certain career. And, and the ones that do over time, they see the compounding benefits. Um, so I find it fascinating that in your early 30s, you, you started seeing the value. You actually went for it. And how was it like joining the board? Well, it was uh, it was not quite what I expected. You know, it's I mean, you know, at, at its most simple, it's just another meeting. And you realize, <laughs> you realize that, you know, you only get probably one big decision a year that's pivotal. Most of the time, business as usual stuff. And so I think, you know, I was almost waiting for this big fanfare to happen and it it was just another day in the office, really. And um, I think it is also about this restlessness to have a dream because once you've kind of got there, you know, you, you you look around and think, well, maybe it isn't quite, it isn't quite the fulfilling thing that I expected it to be. You, you know, there wasn't anything particularly different about those meetings and the executive meetings. Um, so why was I, you know, so obsessed with it? Having said that, I think the thing that I learned um, as an individual is the thing that differentiates people who are on the board and people who are not on the board is information. And the only way I think for you, as a, certainly for me as an executive, or you know, for most people as an executive, is how you use that information. You know, you get privy to information when you sit on the on the board, and it's how you share it. And how freely, you know, and how you synthesize that information, sure that as many people as possible, you know, get, get access to the, to the data and information that you have. Equally, how you listen, because, you know, you don't always realize when you get into those senior roles is, first of all, you know, many people stop listening. You know, their ears are open, but they don't actually hear because, you, you know, they've got you know, they've got to this position and, you know, they, they feel they know best and they feel they know all. And so it was, again, a sobering lesson in how do you make sure that you keep contact with reality and particularly those people who are closest to the cost. Um, and interestingly, at this period of time, Marks and Spencer, who I, I'm, I'm fiercely about that organisation, had started to really struggle. And I was watching, you know, from, from my role in Lex as Marks and Spencer started to fail for the first time ever. And there were massive, you know, massive kind of call out about, you know, why is Marks and Spencer failing after all its so many years of success? And a lot of those executives, I think, at that time had become very deaf to the customer. You know, they'd, they'd kind of grown from their own success and seeing that fr from a distance, I think, really helped me to understand that getting onto that board, you know, you have to keep grounded in reality. It's very easy to be, to, be, to be removed from reality, not just what your people think, what your customers think, but what's happening around you. And then very luckily around that time, 
Lex fulfilled its its obligation for me to go and do an MBA. And I went and did a, a, a sort of part-time MBA Saturdays, every alternate Saturdays and Sundays to, to do an MBA for, for two years. Hugely hard work as well as doing a full-time job. But boy, did it keep me grounded, you know, and all those assignments were all examples of companies that had failed, that hadn't worked, that had had success and then lost the plot. They were all really powerful lessons for me, um, just as I got into that that pivotal role. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it was defining point because not only did I learn about other organizations, particularly as I'd been with Lex then quite some time, but I also was on that MBA with some really spectacular and pretty impressive people who taught me so much about business, just, you know, business in, in, in general. It was, it was a really, really amazing experience. I, I did a two-year um, executive MBA as well and did it on weekends. So I, I can totally relate to what you're saying. It's been an amazing um, experience and you meet so many people who have far better or more experience than you have and so many vantage points. Um, so it's a powerful point. How did you feel about the chip on your shoulder? Did it? How did you feel after? Um, yeah, I think, I think the chip had probably been reduced in size. <laughs> I still think now maybe I missed out on something, you know, whenever you make a choice and you go one way, you think, well, well, how life, how might life have been different? Um, You've done okay. And I, and I do, do, do reflect on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think what it did do was it comes back to the point you just made about the growth mindset. I hadn't really thought about it that way until I just heard you say it, you know, no matter what path you choose in life, as long as you're open-minded to learn, there's always something that's there for, you know, you'll always have opportunity. And as long as you have choice, that's the key thing. You know, as long as you have choice, you know, you'll make what's right for you, I think, is, is, the, is the way I kind of look at it. Yeah, and I just want to go back um, to what you said before. So you joined, you know, as a young female executive, early 30s, in an industry you don't know anything about, you, you joined a board did you have imposter syndrome? Like, did you, did you feel like you don't belong there? Like how, how did you feel about the whole situation? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think again, you know, I don't think that phrase was coined in those times, but it was, you know, one day somebody's going to work out that, um, <laughs> you know, and, and actually, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I actually tell them what I don't know so that, you know, there is no imposter there. Yeah, definitely. And all of those, all of those thoughts. Interestingly though, Timo, ne never, ever, not once did I ever feel that being female was something that held me back um, or that, you know, anybody treated me any differently. You know, I, I get asked to, to, to talk at things, you know, and talk about women in business. And, and actually, I, I struggled with that at the very beginning. Now, I'm being very honest and candid here with you because because I'd never found that challenge. It was difficult for me to relate to it, probably because I was blind to it. What I was very aware of was age working against me and you know I've talked about certain people who took massive risks on me those who didn't very often would say well we can't give you this job because you've got no experience you know those who had a different mindset to those who I thought felt take a risk on me you haven't got the experience and you know you you kind of scratch your head and say well unless somebody gives me the experience how am I going to get and I think you know so the chip the chip moved from being one of of, you know, I haven't got the right education to one of, you know, I haven't got the right experience. All the way through my career, I think some of the best decisions that I've made, you know, around people have been when I've given somebody a chance in a role that probably on paper didn't quite meet the requirements for many and varied reasons. Because I know that when people took that risk on me, I felt so strongly that I wasn't going to let them down. I wasn't let myself down either. And, you know, it's that, it's that feeling. And, and I think the thing that I genuinely relate to in, in diversity is when, when there's prejudice around age, young and old, that's the bit that probably I found very easy to have empathy with because I'd felt it so many times uh, throughout my career. And I don't want to jump around too much, but I, I want to ask it now because it feels relevant. I have to say, when I saw you know, the, the newspaper headline of you joining the Football Association as the chair, I personally felt slightly annoyed by some of the titles, uh, you know, reading 
first female chair in 157 years. And I, I can see why newspapers take that angle. But obviously, the story is all about you and what you're adding and how amazing Debbie is. How did it make you feel, if I may ask? Actually, I think, I think what I learned from the diversity point is that just because I didn't feel ever prejudiced because I was a woman, I always felt as though I had every opportunity you know, that, that was open to me and people took those risks. That doesn't mean to say that others don't. And whilst I'd much prefer the, you know, when the headhunters call and say they're looking for a woman in a particular role, I, you know, it, it does irritate me. I want them to say, look, we're looking for someone who's really effective and we think you've got some great skills. I also know that there are people, women out there who do struggle and who do face adversity because of their gender. And therefore, I get over those kind of uh, headlines by, by thinking, well, if that inspires one more woman, one more girl, one more young boy, pursue their dream, then actually it's a small price for me to pay because I hope that those who recruited me, you know, know that the decision to make me, you know, to give me that job is not because I'm the first female chair. It just so happens as a byproduct I am. And as long as those who've recruited me and those who work with me come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what her gender, she, she's really doing this job well, that, that is really what matters. I love the focus on inspiration. That's really, really powerful. So go, going back to the IAC, you're feeling like you're being punished for running HR. Uh, obviously, over time, you see it as a huge blessing in disguise. Where did you move on from? Then move on to run the operations of the REC, probably which is one of the jobs that of all my time I've enjoyed the most. It was a very, very special time. So, you know, you're running 8,500 people. We're always open 365 days a year. What you do is the fourth emergency service. On one, one hand, you know, you think, well, you know, it's a very routine sort of role. My gosh, what those girls and guys do is life-saving. It was incredible. It was a digital, you know, early digital business. You know, an awful lot of what we were doing had moved from paper to technology. So my, my first understanding of how technology can make a difference and change a business model, but equally a hugely people-focused business. With people who are very passionate, the brand, you know, helped me understand how the brand really is important and a real mission, you know, to when people break down, it's a terrifying situation often you know either they're on their own or they're with their family they're by the side of a motorway it's dangerous our girls and guys went and and fixed went and fixed their vehicles towed them to safety looked after them and worked as i said 165 days a year 24 hours a day uh, we were never closed and running that operation was a bit like kind of operations and speed really but i love that job i love that job with a passion and and, and even now still continue to talk to some of our patrols who me about my football interests. <laughs> Amazing. And what did you learn about yourself linked to leadership and, and I guess your own style of leadership? Because simplifying, but I mean, you, you were selling cars before, then you managed an HR function that's much, much, much smaller than the operations team. And then all of a sudden you're, you're managing 8,500 people. So a huge, huge team. But how did you inspire them, motivate them? What did you learn about yourself? I spent one of my first days out with the patrols. So truly understanding what they did, how it works, what their frustrations were. So really, really deeply understanding the operation. And that's something which, you know, has been such a fundamental part of, of the way I've gone about doing any job really, you know, you've got to understand it from the customer's perspective and from your people's perspective. But I think the most powerful lesson I learned from a, from a very helpful mentor at the time was how are you present when you're not present? When a business is open 24 hours, you can't be everywhere all the time. You know, you've got to have a very good and very strong team and they can't be present everywhere all the time. And It's this thing about culture, you know, how do you make sure that when people make a decision, they would know what you think, what you would hope, what you would expect without all the time being there and empowering people. You know, in the RAC, you know, those patrols were out day and night. They had to make decisions. They couldn't just say, oh, I have to look at the rule book or I have to, 
you know, do what management tell me to do. They have to make decisions. They're dealing with very often matters of life and death. And so that whole point about how the culture of the organization, you as a leader set the tone from the top, how do you make sure your vision is present when you're not present? And how do you make sure that you delegate sufficiently to people, give them that authority with the training to make the right decision day in, day out so that it's seamless and doing things through people. You know, that's, it's, it was the most powerful role I've ever had where that's such an important part of what, what you do. Really fascinating point. At Gusto, we focus so much on creating conditions for people to win. And it's all about how do you make the winning behaviors as um, obvious as possible so that everyone can live them, we can celebrate them. You don't really have to be present as a leader. Um, it's, it's a great point you made. Thank you. And, you know, naturally in operations, not everything goes, goes according to plan. It's a really challenging function. Can you share one or two really difficult situations you had to face? Yeah, I think 7-7 um, was one of them when, you know, the terrorist attack in London. Those of you may remember at the time, those of you who are um, old enough to remember it, you know, what happened was most people just left their cars. Um, you know, it was terrifying in, in central London and they just left their cars and, you know, bolted out of London, literally, because you know, the fear was there were going to be bombs all over London. You know, they were going off. It was a horrible, horrible situation. Mm. And we were part of the, literally part of the fourth emergency service and asked, you can imagine central London, just cars left and you couldn't get, you know, emergency services in. So we were asked, would we go and literally tow these cars all out of London? And, you know, you had to make a decision. Do, you know, who did you send in to do that? Wow. Because you were probably putting them in danger. And we asked for volunteers. That was our decision. We said, nobody's going to be forced to go. Be volunteers. I, I was overwhelming. You know, it wasn't quite eight and a half thousand volunteers, but it wasn't far off. You know, all of these people are saying, yeah, that's our job. That's what we do. We'll go and fetch them. And I can remember just being completely overwhelmed. You know, we, we as a sort of management team had been more, you know, we can't force people and we must make sure this was all happening in real time, you know, really quickly. We must make sure we give people choice and we, we you know, we shouldn't have wasted our time. We should have known that, you know, their commitment and their, their whole purpose was to make people safe. Well, I felt so proud, you know, of, of everybody that, that and, and went in, yeah, a, re a real moment in time. I think the other one, the other spectrum was when the RAC was bid for. You were a listed business and the company was bid for. And, you know, when you're a listed business, you can't tell people certain things because, you know, they become insiders and you have obligations to stakeholders, shareholders. And I knew that the, the company had been bid for. Part of the board was, was defending the bid or potentially recommending the bid. And it was playing out in the press and we couldn't tell our people. You know, we just simply couldn't people. And I really struggled with that as a lead. You know, how can you be authentic and honest and straightforward when you're dealing with information that you can't share with people for whatever reason? And, and that felt tough, actually. You know, sometimes as a leader, there are those situations where, you know, it's, it's not appropriate to share for, for many and varied rooms. It's not appropriate, but you, it goes to the heart of your authenticity. And that was a tough time. And particularly when we ultimately recommended the bid, it was a, You a very full offer. You know, those of you who've read the press at the weekend, I'm sure the Morrison's board are going through something very similar at the moment. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, um, I sent Dave uh, an email and we talked briefly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you, you know, the reality is you you carry that burden. You know, it's a, it's a privilege to be a leader. It's also sometimes a burden. And, you know, I can remember when it, when it was announced that we'd recommend it. I, I felt in some respects, you know, I'd not, not quite, I'd let people down, you know, because... You know, I hadn't, hadn't, hadn't been able to be open and honest with them. And, you know, we'd recommended it. And I wanted to get around everybody and share with them, you know, just what driven us to, to recommend and why, you know, our obligations to shareholders. Yeah, it was an, an interesting period of time. But it's, again, you know, I've been in, in situations where I've been on listed boards where you have sort of situations. It's, it's helped me understand how you, how you have to handle those, those situations. Thanks for sharing both of these stories. Um, really incredible experiences. And so then you're moving from running the operation 
to ultimately running the organization. How did it happen? And I guess, how did it feel for you? Yeah, running the whole thing, it felt like the, the next natural step. And, you know, by that stage, I'd started to get a lot of approaches from headhunters. And, you, you know, it was one of those, you know, what do, what do I do next? Where am I? Where do I see my career developing? And, and I think by that stage, I was so passionate about the RAC and it's and where it was and the role that it played. I think had the organization not been acquired, um, I would I would still I probably wouldn't still be there because they probably fired me. But because <laughs> um, I would have probably about grown my time, but I would still be there now today. But of course, the acquisition meant that I was the overhead. Um, you know, one of the, it was Aviva who bought the business and insurer. And one of the reasons why they bought the business was to integrate it into their operation. And of course, they didn't need a, a chief executive um, and certainly not, you, you know, one of the, you know, in, in the in the way that I'd done the job, they, they saw the model, the operating model changing quite substantially. So I found myself having a very adult conversation with Aviva, which went along the lines of, you know, will you stay and help us integrate the business? And, you know, maybe there could be a role for you in Aviva. And I, I struggled a bit with it at first because I found some of the decision making. It's, it's often, you know, when, when you go through acquisitions, culture is such an important part that you try to protect that, you, you know, I, I, I was really struggling with, well, how much of me is this protecting our culture and how this is, is me resistant to change? Because, you know, they're changing the organization that I've led. And I think within that first year, it became clear to me that it wasn't, I wasn't going to be a good person working inside that, that sort of structure, that, that big corporate organization. It just didn't feel like it was the right role, uh, the, right, the right place for me. I would say very publicly, though, Aviva treated me absolutely brilliantly. You know, they tried really hard to, to come up with roles and to, you know, they, they were great, actually. And in fact, I stayed a lot longer than I had originally signed on for because what became clear was they didn't want to keep all of the elements of RAC. They wanted to sell certain of the smaller businesses that were part of RAC. And they asked me to lead that. And I'm eternally grateful to Aviva because had they not done that, I would never have done a management buyout, which I did at the time, and I would have never started my portfolio career. So I've, I've a, lot, a lot to thank them for. I would love to talk about the portfolio career a bit. So how, how did it start then? Well, it started with failure as, as a way. I think there's a bit of a theme here with my career. I couldn't get another chief exec role that I, that I wanted to do. So whilst I was helping the integration of RAC, I was applying for, for roles. And this is, you know, this is probably writ large. The, I got down to the final two of, of four chief exec roles and in the end didn't get them because the conclusion was, oh, well, you know, you haven't got the experience. We, although we said we wanted someone from outside the industry, we actually think the industry candidate is better. And, and they probably were. And in fact, I saw in those roles, people go into them and, and they were probably right to appoint those people and not appoint me. There was only one case where I felt actually you might have got a different result if you'd appointed me. But uh, by and large, they probably were right when they made the appointments. But, you know, that's where the chip bit you know, didn't, hadn't quite gone away. I thought, crikey, you know, I just can't break in to a different sector because I've been, you know, in a sector for too long. And I, and I felt a bit of a failure. You know, this is terrible. You know, I'm, I'm now going to really struggle. As I say, um, Aviva gave me the opportunity to, um, to do a management buyout of a business, which I did, knowing then, you know, myself that actually I would not have been a good chief exec for that role. The guy that was running it was much better than me. And I said, well, look, you, you be chief exec and I'll be the chairman. Um, we, it was as simple as that, really. There was no assessment center or assessment process. We literally divided it up between us. I think he was a little bit fearful that, you know, I had one other non-exec role, which was the one that I, I've taken on in my exec career. He was a little bit fearful that I'd interfere and meddle. And I decided what I do is, is go and, go and do a number of different roles because clearly I wasn't going to be able to get a full-time role doing the job I wanted to do. Lots of COO opportunities. I was offered lots of COO roles, but not CEO. Um, and that's how the portfolio started. I had the headhunters at the time telling me, mad, I was 42. They said, you know, you will, you'll regret it. You'll never be able to get back into 
doing a full-time chief exec role. Um, you know, organizations will struggle to put you in those roles. But I was inspired by a guy called Alan Lennon. Those of you who may know Alan, a very famous plural exec. He just coined the phrase going plural. Despite what he'd done, if he could do it, I'm sure I could do it. And uh, off I went building a portfolio. I love the drive and optimism and, and focus um, on achieving things like that. That's really amazing. And you mentioned this point about the CEO potentially worrying that you wouldn't interfere. How do you as a chair uh, uh, kind of draw the line between meddling and not meddling? Because I'm sure that's that's a pretty blurred line at times. Yeah, it is. And, and I make sure I'm always busy. <laughs> Natural tendency is to meddle. Look, I, I mean, I think it's a really good question. I mean. I start with the principle that the CEO runs the business and I run the board. And I think that's my, always my starting point. Of course, you, you know, in situations and God forbid it doesn't happen that often, but situations when it's your role as chair to change the CEO, occasionally you do have to, to go in and run the business, but that should not be where you start out. And it should certainly not be your modus operandi for business as usual. And I think, you know, that's a discussion that I have. I mean, I, I chair for businesses and that's a discussion I have with my chief execs. I, I, you know, I have four chief execs. They're all very different. They all run very different businesses, go about their jobs in a, in a different way. And they have different strengths and weaknesses. And I try to make sure that I mold where and how I do the role to their own skill set. Because I think, you know, one and one of a, and in fact, I always think of chair, chief, exec and FD. I always think about that as a triumvirate. And those three, you know, should, in my experience, you know, add more than the sum of the parts, uh, than, the, than the individual elements, the sum of the parts should add more. And that's about making sure that you have those open, honest dis discussions about, you know, look, my, my weaknesses, I meddle. Um, you know, how do we stop me doing this? I have a real open dialogue with them. If you think I'm meddling, I'll often something to them and say, if it's meddling, tell mind my business. And I try and work with them, you know, in a very open way to make sure that the molding of that triumvirate does mean that the, the sum of the parts is more than the individual elements. And what about the remaining board? What makes, a, you know, a board collectively great and the sum of the parts greater than the individual parts? Well, to me, a board should be no different than an executive team in that, you know, a high performing board should have many of many of the skills of a, of a high performing executive team. It's just that they manifest themselves in a different way. So I, I do look for diversity. I genuinely look for diversity of thought. For me, that's what diversity is all about, that, you, you know, you think in different ways and you think in different ways because you've got a mixture of tenure, you've got a mixture of experience and you've got a mixture of thinking styles. And I think for me, that is genuine diversity. The minute it's group think, it all looks very vanilla. You all look and you sound the same. You know, you've lost the plot as a chair, I think. And I think also about inclusion because, you know, I've seen on boards that I've sit in where there is genuinely a diversity of thought, but that you're the different person, you know, you're either the newbie that hasn't got the knowledge of the organization and you're not included. You know, there's no point in putting different people onto a board and then not including them. So I, I hope, you know, my style, I hope that the people who work with me would say my style is to make sure that I, I do include. I go all out to make sure that the input is, is given. I also think quite hard about the balance of support and challenge. You know, extremes of both are really deeply unhelpful for a board. So too much support and a board starts to sleepwalk. It's all patting each other on the back and it's all brilliant. And, you know, there's no controversy. You know, that's not normal life. You know, there's controversy in every walk of life when you get more than two people in a room. And so, you know, or, or, or conflict or, you know, differences of opinion. And if, if it's all completely aligned all the time, there's something not, not working. Equally, if there's too much challenge, then the team are crushed every time they appear. You know, that's not a great place, you know, for people to be fearful about coming to the board, I think it's a terrible culture. So I'm always looking for that balance of support and challenge. So, you know, it is easier as a non-exec to ask the questions. You, you know, you can be very smart and ask very, very interesting questions. But there's occasions when as a non-exec non that, you know, you have to roll your sleeves up and help. 
you know, where you're there, not necessarily to ask the questions, but to help the team with the answers. You know, and I make sure as a chair that when those moments pivot, you know, okay, guys, girls, our, our role here is not necessarily to ask the questions. We've got to roll our sleeves up and help them with some answers because we're all in the unknown at the moment. Equally, when a board starts to roll its sleeves up too much, you, you know, my, my role as the chair is to say, look, guys, we've got to give them the space. We've got to back them. We've got to let them do it. You know, we've asked all the questions. Now they've got to take the accountability. And it's getting that balance that I spend a fair bit of my headspace thinking about. Really powerful. I love the description of a high challenge, high support. I think in coaching, it's called the loving boot of high performance. It's a powerful point to constantly adjust. And as a final question, Debbie, what energizes you? How do you remain so focused, so passionate about the businesses you're involved with? You know, what do you do kind of to, I guess, unwind and stay balanced? Well, I have two, two 12-year-old twins. I missed that bit out. One of the things that happened when I went into portfolio life, aged 44, believe it or not, I, I found myself pregnant with twins. Um, and so they are very much my uh, my my outside work time, which is, is not relaxing. Uh, you'll know having children yourself, it's not the most relaxing place, but boy, do they keep me grounded. You, you know, kids tell it as it is. There's no sugar coating. You, you know, they, they know, they know if you're stressed, they know if you've got things out of perspective and boy, do they tell you. And they, they tell you in a way that's um, very direct and often very humbling for me. So that's, you know, that's a very important part of my life. As is my husband, he's a rock, you know, I work full time. I couldn't do what I do without their three support actually. So they, they play a very, very significant part comes back to where I started really family so them and, and, and my two siblings and their families and my, my 86 year old father keep me uh, incredibly grounded. And then, of course, my other passion is, is football. I'm a, a Liverpool and a Notts County supporter and, of course, an England supporter. And, you know, I love watching football and it doesn't have to be at club level. You know, I love grassroots football too. We have local teams that I find of great interest. So any, any opportunity I've got to go and watch any people kick a ball around, uh, or occasionally to join in, uh, that would be my, my biggest form of relaxation. And of course, um, thank you for being so extremely generous not to discuss the Euro-Germany-England game, Debbie. Um, that's very kind of you. Thanks so much for sharing. It's been really fantastic having you on. I learned a lot and I feel like I got to know you better despite having known you for a couple of years. So huge, huge thanks for sharing so um, openly, Debbie. Thank you. 